0: The following podcast includes explicit language, but we assume that's what you came for.
1: Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of November 14th, 2022. On this week's show, Grant Wall will join us to talk about the World Cup in Qatar and all the bribery and authoritarianism and fun soccer things that brought us here. We'll also talk about the coaching debut of the Colts' Jeff Saturday and what it says about who gets opportunities in the NFL, And finally, we'll look at who's benefiting from the new name, image, and likeness rules in college sports and what those rules have meant for female athletes in particular. I'm in Washington, D.C., and I'm the author of The Queen and the host of the podcast, One Year. Check out our new season on 1942. New episodes still rolling out every week. Also in D.C., Stefan Fatsis. He's the author of the books Wild and Outside, Word Freak, and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hey, Josh. How are you? I'm doing great with us from California, host of Slow Burn Season 3 and 6, host of an upcoming one-year episode. Stay tuned. And it's just getting redundant to talk about TCU and their uh, victorious performances, so should we just put that to the side today, Joel? Joel Anderson. Hey,
0: um, I'll leave that to you all. There's a lot, uh, there's three more games to go before anybody should really get too excited. (laughs) Mississippi State was the top-ranked team when the first college football playoff ratings came out, in case you don't remember. So a lot of things can happen between now and when they set the brackets.
1: Um All right. In the five seconds that you were answering my question, I've decided that in our Slate Plus uh, segment, we're going to talk some more about TCU football. Uh, <laughs> I'm being serious. We are going to talk more about TCU football and check in with Joel's uh Mental state. We can talk about other college football things too, Joel. Don't don't be too concerned. We we won't focus all of our tractor beam uh, love and energy on you.
0: Well, congratulations. I mean, uh, LSU going to be playing an SEC championship game. So we could talk about that as well.
1: Oh, great. Maybe we will. Um, If you want (laughs) to, if you want to hear that. Uh, you need to be a Slate Plus member, and why wouldn't you want to be with that sort of delightful conversation in the offing? Um, you get bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts. You get to listen to ad-free shows. You get to support us. Slate.com slash hangupplus. Slate.com slash plus.
2: As we record this, we are just six days from the start of a World Cup finals with a lot of firsts. First one staged in the Middle East. First one played in November and December. First one to cost more than $200 billion dollars first one built on the backs of thousands of exploited migrant workers. Not a first. The host country accused of paying millions of dollars in bribes to get the tournament. Our friend Grant Wall has landed in Qatar, where he'll be cranking out content for his website, grantwall.com, to which
3: you should subscribe. Hey, Grant, how was the trip? Hey, I'm doing okay. You're catching me just a few hours after I landed, after a three-legged trip Uh, Newark, Toronto, Cairo, Doha. Didn't get the upgrade I was hoping for. And, uh, I'm, I'm here. I made it. Looking forward to sleep.
2: The struggle is real, man.
3: All right, Qatar, the soccer team, opens the tournament against Ecuador
2: next Sunday. The United States plays its first match against Wales the following day. But after years of outrage over this repressive Petro state hosting the World Cup and the moral, ethical, and logistical compromises that it's necessitated, the whole thing feels a little dirty and diminished and kind of farcical. This is your second visit to Qatar this year, Grant. Describe what it's felt like in the few hours since you arrived.
3: Well, it is my second trip this year, so I know what it's like on the ground, so there's no surprises. Um, it's still hot, by the way. <laughs> like, it may be November, but it's in the 90s, and so some of these kickoffs at 1 p.m. local time, it's going to be really hot. And I know that some of these air, you know, stadiums are air-conditioned and what have you, but um, I noticed that. It, there's also this sort of film of dust that constantly coats you and everyone else and everything else dust sand whatever it may be um so that hit me again um and you know the first person i saw at the airport today was bora milutinovic uh the former us coach who has been working with the qataris for 2009 i think and uh, was he he holding up a sign that said grant wall it was totally random at the airport he's like grant um but uh love that guy and and, uh, so it was a nice way to start uh my time on the ground here but um you know for all the reasons that you mentioned there's a lot of conflicted feelings about being at this world cup i think those are shared with me by a lot of the the fans who'll be watching on TV or choosing not to watch or other people who are coming here to Qatar, because I've done a lot of reporting on this from my site. I came here in in February and and literally talked to migrant workers at 14 different FIFA hotels, asked them if the new Qatari laws to supposedly protect migrant workers are being followed on the ground. Uh, The trends were no uh, in most cases. and, you know, that's obviously, you know, hanging over this entire event. The fact that, uh, being gay is illegal here and in women's rights, uh, plenty of issues, uh, there women don't have the right to do things on their own. So, um, yeah, pretty conflicted. I mean, Russia 2018 had its own issues by the way. And, and so, um, I am hopeful that, uh, we can get away from authoritarian countries hosting super events like the World Cup and the Olympics. Grant, first
0: of all, thanks for joining us. So one quick question. Is it Qatar, Qatar? We've all we've all decided uh, different. which's which the official way? We're going to go the way whatever you go.:
3: I, I say Qatar. And what I found interesting was was that even the ads for Qatar Airways in the US last year around the Gold Cup said Qatar. And so if they're saying it on the Qatar Airways ads, that's what I'm going to say. And so I, I don't try and wolf blitzer it up. So the
0: question I have for you is that you've done this great reporting, talking with migrant workers. We know that this is sort of an, an, this is an authoritarian country. Have you felt any danger or discomfort by going out and talking to these people and reporting on the things you've been reporting on there? Have you felt, you know, heard any, anything that would make you give it, you know, feel
3: unsafe there? You know, I I haven't felt unsafe here in Qatar, even when I was doing reporting, talking to migrant workers in February. But one thing I wanted to make sure was that I didn't put any migrant workers in danger for talking to me, whether danger means physical danger or the danger of being deported from the country for talking to a journalist, because I gave them anonymity. But it was really important that I be able to keep that anonymity. And so when I was here in February, everyone here had to have this app on their phone, which they say is a COVID app, that literally is a tracking app, spyware. And thankfully, you don't need that anymore here. But uh, I was very aware of that in February. And I'm aware that journalists, two Norwegian journalists got detained for doing journalism on this type of stuff last November. I didn't want to get detained, but I also realized that You know, I have a uh, a certain power carrying an American passport as a journalist here, and it wouldn't be in their interest, the Qataris, to arrest me, detain me, imprison me, do anything like that.
1: So FIFA president Gianni Infantino has said to all of the countries competing in the World Cup that they should let football take the stage. That's his view. He also said, there are many challenges and difficulties of a political nature all around the world, but football should not be expected to have an answer to every one. Well, fair enough. They should maybe have an answer to this particular question, but maybe not every every question. And I guess, Grant, the question of whether we should be talking about the games and whether or whether we should be talking about the corrupt way in which Qatar got the World Cup, about the migrant workers who have been have died and um, constructing all of these stadiums. I think it it's less that someone like you will not want to write about that that stuff, but it's more like Fox Sports, who's the right holder for the United States, has said explicitly it is not going to talk about this this stuff, which is kind of a crazy thing to just up front admit by a place that purports to be some kind of media organization. And then there are also people who are just not going to, they're going to say, oh, well, it seems like it's going to be really hard to do this. And like, there's kind of this pressure from the government. So I'm just like, not even going to try, like, there's going to be like a chilling effect around this stuff. And so, um, you know, the question of whether and how attention is going to be paid. I, I'm sure that a lot of people will be writing about this, this stuff, but not everyone and not in the major, uh, American rights holder on television. You
3: know, I, personally, as a journalist, wanted to come here earlier in the year and do the reporting on migrant workers before I came in November and December, because I know what covering World Cups is like, because uh, there's a ton of soccer. There's four games a day for the first half of the tournament, and I'm going to be spending a ton of time covering soccer. So I wanted to cover the other important things before the tournament started. And we'll see if any incidents happen during the tournament, protests from players or anything like that. Um, The Fox Sports thing, I used to work for them at previous World Cups and and ended up choosing to leave in part because of how they approached Russia in 2018 because it was a similar thing where uh, they literally have a policy that we are not going to address at all anything that they view as, quote, controversial about a host country. They didn't about Russia. They won't. They've said this about Qatar. The wrinkles in addition to that are Fox Sports has an, an enormous sponsorship deal worth millions and millions of dollars with Qatar Airways, which is the Qatar government. And so they're being paid by the Qatar government. And it seems like, you know, kind of a you know, unclean type of deal that is taking place here. Um, and, And I think that's a real problem. I mean, like, there's other rights holders in other countries are addressing this stuff. And not only is Fox putting their head in the sand, but they're actually doing sort of paid infomercial type tourism pieces saying, you know, go go to camel racing and dune buggy riding in the desert and learn about falconry. And So it's not just that they're putting their head in the sand, they're actually working with the Qataris. And so, yeah, that part of it is just, yeah, there's something really disappointing about that. And, you know, even NBC during the the Winter Olympics in China earlier this year, right from the top, Mike Tirico came out and addressed the elephant in the room and talked about the diplomatic boycott and mentioned genocide of the Uyghur population by the Chinese from the start. So Fox is choosing to do this and they're going to get paid a lot from the Qataris for it, but it's, it's pretty messed up.
2: I think you're going to see protests. And, and even though teams have been warned by FIFA to just focus on the football, um, you're going to see armbands that support LGBTQ plus rights. Uh, the Australian men's national team a couple of weeks ago put out a statement about human rights. Um, you know, team captains have, and coaches have criticized uh, the Qatari government. And the Qataris have not responded in any, you know, way that would indicate a softening. Um, you know, German football stadiums have been filled with boycott Qatar banners in recent weeks. And Qatar's foreign minister was quoted in the German media recently saying that the German population is misinformed by government politicians. And pointed out that the German government has no problems with us when it comes to energy partnerships or investments. I mean, you're going to see a lot of this sort of defensive posturing, I think. You know, we're already seeing that in some of the good reporting um, about what's happening at the tournament. And a lot of it's just going to be obvious. You know, the New York Times has a, a piece, had a piece on Monday um, about how the Qatari government at the last minute is forcing Budweiser to move its beer tents farther away from stadiums. I mean, you're not going to be able to drink inside the stadium, but now they want them even farther away to even more discreet locations.
3: Yeah, the Qataris are being pretty defiant lately with a lot of this stuff, including the Norwegian Federation president. She's a former player, called them out earlier this year, and and they the Qataris like to say that they're not educated on, on things. And, um, you know, like... Look, I get that the Qataris want to make clear that if you've heard a number, like 6,500 people have died, migrant workers in the country since Qatar was awarded the World Cup hosting rights in 2010, the Qataris think that's a misleading figure because they will say, well, we've had 39 stadium-related deaths with the World Cup. But... Basically everything in this country, infrastructure-wise, that has been built since 2010 has some connection to the World Cup. You're building a country, literally, (laughs) and that includes the big metro system that will be used at this World Cup, all the transportation stuff around the country, you know, the stadium that's hosting the final in Lusail, I went to that spot in 2013 and it was desert. They've literally not just built a stadium out of desert, they've built an entire city where the World Cup final will be. So there's a lot of message fighting going on between different sides.
0: Given all that Grant, um, obviously people knew what uh Qatar was before they went there. The body that seems like it should be bearing the r- responsibility for this is FIFA. And, you know, there's been reports that members of FIFA have taken bribes you know, totaling $1.5 million. So what, if anything, people are, have directed so much outrage at like the Qatari government. And what, if anything, is uh going to be done about FIFA's role in this?
3: Well, the day in 2010 that FIFA awarded the World Cup hosting rights to Russia for 2018 and Qatar for 2022 was a real important day in the history of FIFA, because that eventually led to the U.S. Department of Justice investigation into FIFA and its confederations and all of the arrests that were made in 2015. And some of those cases continue today. And... It really did expose just how corrupt FIFA was. We we kind of knew it was, but like this was an impressive investigation by the DOJ, a forensic investigation. There's a good new series on Netflix called FIFA Uncovered uh, that gets into all of this. Four-part series that I finished uh, a couple days ago, and it it's it's not anything necessarily new for people who followed it, but it's really interesting because they've got everything and they've got interviews with so many of the principal figures, including Seth Blatter. Um, And I think it's a a well-told story.
1: Let's end with the U.S. men's national team. And you've had some really good reporting on your site, Grant, about um, the kind of crazy amount of vetting that U.S. soccer has done around, like, the crazy opulent hotel that they're staying at and whether the rules are being followed around, you know, workers' rights, you get the sense that they're doing that because they don't want a bad PR story to come out. Um, and maybe if there are some good human rights things come out because of that, then that's like an added bonus. But they've also been, you know, having these regular seminars for the players, kind of educating them about what's happening in Qatar. Again, maybe to prepare them for interviews, um, but also it seems like a positive thing that they're doing that. And so just curious, based on your reporting, what you think of how the U.S. team and U.S. soccer has approached this World Cup. And then, um, you know, maybe, maybe Stefan can come in and ask you a soccer question after that. I mean, when I went to
3: Qatar in February and went to the U.S. team hotel, which is the nicest hotel of all the FIFA hotels in Doha, and Maybe a
1: short stay, but it's nice <laughs> I <don't>. <laughs> <laughs> And
3: And I had been told by U.S. Soccer that you know, they were doing all these things and working with the hotel to prevent any issues from happening with workers not being paid or, or be, having to pay recruitment fees, which is also against the law. And literally the first worker I talked to when I went into the hotel in February told me about these huge recruitment fe- fees he had paid And I came away from that thinking that U.S. soccer at that time was well-meaning, but a little naive about how things were working on the ground, including at their own hotel. I will give U.S. soccer credit, though, because about a month or two after that, they hired a compliance officer in Doha full-time to work with the hotel and any other vendors that U.S. Soccer is working with during this World Cup and came up with a very detailed checklist. Uh, They participate in meetings regularly with workers at the hotel, including um, contract workers, not just direct employees at the hotel, because subcontractors are are the ones that get away with a lot of the worst treatment of workers here. Um, And so I actually want to... Yeah, I'll give U.S. Soccer some credit. I think they've done more than other federations have, certainly, Uh, And they have educated their players going on for about two years now. And we'll see if any protests come from the U.S. players during this tournament. But even today here, my first day in Doha, I went to the U.S. press conference and Sean Johnson, the goalkeeper, was asked his thoughts on migrant workers and on on it being illegal to be gay here. And, And his response was... What you kind of hear from other U.S. players, but it was, it was well thought out, but we want to be the change. Be the change is their slogan. Uh, they used it first after George Floyd's murder by police. So I thought Sean Johnson handled it pretty well. You know, we're all going to
2: pivot because it's what we do as fans of sports to getting into the games when they start. And I, I felt that little tingle of excitement when I saw on Twitter a video of uh, four of the American players arriving at the airport in Doha. Let's go, America! So the issue for the American team as they get to Qatar is that they're not hurt. And that was a big concern with—it's a big concern for every national team that's participating in the World Cup finals because of the compressed schedule around the world to get more games in before this mid-season World Cup occurs. Um, that's a big deal. Um, this has been a team that's, that's had its problems with injuries, um, and everyone seems to be okay as they arrive, right?
3: It's actually pretty, a really good sign for the US that Christian Pulisic is healthy coming into this, that Gio Reyna is healthy coming into this, and there are actually more healthy wingers to the point that we haven't seen over the last couple of years, that Paul Ariolo was cut from the national team for the final cuts uh, to come to Qatar, it's a 26-player roster. Um, one question mark, I guess you would say, is Weston McKennie who did not suit up for Juventus over the weekend. He's been dealing with an injury for about a week and a half. And so there's enough of a concern there that maybe McKinney won't start the first game against Wales. But right now, that's the only injury concern.
2: All right, Grant, well, we will be following all of your great work on your website, grantwall.com, as the month long tournament uh, begins and progresses. You've got some great stuff up there right now, including your reporting from Qatar about uh, worker rights. Um, you had a nice interview with Jeremy Schapp of ESPN about his E60 reporting on worker rights abuses. So everybody should go uh, check out Grant's website and subscribe. Grant Wall, thank you, as always, for coming on the show.
3: Thanks, guys. My pleasure.
0: to last week. The only previous head coaching experience Jeff Saturday had was at Hebron Christian Academy in Georgia, where he had a record of 20 and 16. Saturday lost 3 of his last 5 in that role, including 2 to Athens Academy. It wasn't exactly the resume of a man bound for a coaching opportunity at the next level, let alone in the NFL. But there was Saturday on Sunday working as interim head coach of the 3-5-1 Indianapolis Coats, the franchise he played for for 13 seasons and later worked for as a consultant to owner Jim Irsay. It's basically an unprecedented assignment. Saturday became the first NFL head coach with no prior college or professional coaching experience since Norm Van Brocklin with the Minnesota Vikings in 1961. Here's Saturday talking about the move last week. I know I can lead men. I know I know the game of football, and I'm passionate about it. I have no fear about, are you as qualified as somebody else? Bro, I spent 14 years in a locker room. I went to the playoffs 12 times. I I got five dudes in the Hall of Fame that played with it. You don't think I've seen greatness? You don't think I've seen how people prepare, how they coach, how they GM, how they work? I mean, won Super Bowls, been to two. Like, here's the deal, man. None of us are promised a good job. I may be terrible at this. And after eight games, I'll say, God bless you. I am no good. I may be really good at it. I got no idea. But I dang sure ain't going to back down. I can tell you that. Well, so far, he's off to a good start. Saturday notched his first career victory Sunday in the Colts' 25 to 20 victory over the Las Vegas Raiders. So, Stefan, a lot of former players, coaches, and fans have been critical of the move for obvious reasons. And as the only former NFL player on this podcast... What did you think about Saturday's appointment and do you believe this has a chance to work?
2: Sure, it has a chance to work, as Jeff Saturday, who protected Peyton Manning's ass for all those years, let alone a kicker, can tell you, Joel, head coaches don't need to know that much about play calling or even personnel. That's what assistant coaches are for. Information is funneled upward. So for now, Saturday's job is to say yes or no to suggestions from his staff, assure fans that he is, in fact, a leader of men, and get fired up in the post-victory locker room. Game balls for everyone, which was the soundbite on Sunday. Roger Sherman of The Ringer tweeted, what if the Jeff Saturday thing ends up revealing that being an NFL head coach is actually way easier than everybody has claimed, and you don't need to grind 90-hour weeks for two decades to be good at it? Now, to be fair, 20-16 for a high school team with the mascot Judah the Lion should not be dismissed, but the actual issue is less whether Saturday is qualified than it is appearances Jim Mercey knew that passing over Colts and other NFL assistant coaches who have been actually working in the league would piss people off. On CBS, ex-Steelers coach Bill Cowher called Saturday's hiring a travesty and a disgrace to the profession. Cowher also pointedly noted that Saturday is a carpetbagger, that he had turned down multiple offers to join the Colts staff as an assistant and was working as a consultant for the team from his home in Atlanta. And the assistants that were passed over, of course, include black assistants who, whether an NFL interim head coaching job is an actual opportunity or not, which we'll discuss were passed over once again. But Ursay knew that X's and O's don't matter. He hired a famous buddy and team legend to generate media attention and fan buzz and take the spotlight off of a shitty season. If the Colts win a few games and salvage the year, it's gravy. If they continue to lose, well, what was Jeff Saturday supposed to do? And the Colts hire an experienced or deserving head coach, and they also get a higher draft pick. This is no lose, I think, for Ursay, other than a little criticism, which NFL owners are built to weather.
1: In a world in which the NFL wasn't notorious for its racist hiring practices, I think this would actually be a good thing for the reasons that you mentioned, Stefan, um, to demonstrate that you don't have to come from a traditional background, that you don't have to be an assistant coach for a billion years, that um, it, it isn't rocket science to, you know, stand on the sideline and you know decide whether to go for it on fourth down or not. Although uh, Nathaniel Hackett of the Broncos has made it seem like it's actually rocket science to do that. Um, but it's impossible not to view this um, through the lens of, you know, for instance, Brian Flores's uh, lawsuit against the NFL, um, which demonstrates, I, I think, pretty clearly how. Um, Black coaches who do get head jobs are treated and ones who don't get um, the opportunities are treated. And so, you know, it's, it's similar in terms of kind of personality to the Lions coach, Dan Campbell, right? The guy who in his opening press conference talked about how his team was going to bite the kneecaps off of their opponents. And, uh, you know, Saturday definitely won the press conference. He's a winning. Uh, personality, he was a, a little bit vulnerable in saying that he doesn't know if he's going to be good at the job or not. And, you know, he said exactly what he should have said that he's like, we're not going to listen to the criticism, that he's going to, um, you know, try his best and we'll, he'll see what happens. And so he's not the problem here. Like, obviously, he should have taken this opportunity and obviously he should think he could be good at it and maybe he will be. Um, Jim Irsay is the issue. And what we're seeing here is a boss, you you had it right, Stefan, a boss hiring his friend, his unqualified friend. And there's nothing kind of older than that in the universe, Joel, in any profession.
0: I think an uh, interesting thing is that Ursi, when he was introducing Jeff Saturday to the fans and the media last week, he said, well, you know, I, I've been in this business for 52 years and I know something about what it's like to hire a winning coach and build a winning franchise. But the thing that's uh, sort of, Unravels all of that for me is by looking at the coach who was on the other sideline against Jeff Saturday on Sunday, Josh McDaniels. Cause a lot of people may not remember it was, uh, Jim Ursay who almost hired Josh McDaniels to be his head coach in 2018. And McDaniels backed out, um, and went back to the Patriots. And McDaniels has a career record now of 13 and 23, uh, and appear, he's been doing so poorly that it seems like he might not make it through this season himself. So if it was that simple, if the DNA, if the the know-how of hiring a good coach was so obvious to Jim Ursay, then presumably he would have never ended up trying to bring in Josh McDaniels. So yeah, like this is all sort of a crapshoot. The one thing, though, that sort of changed my mind about this, and I'm I've kind of gone back and forth about whether or not, you know, this is a good move, bad move, whatever. Um, I was listening to Bamati Jones' podcast on Friday and Dominique Foxworth was, t- um, who's worked in the former NFL player, worked in the union, uh, covers the NFL for ESPN. And he was saying, Hey, look, man, I'm best friends with Jeff Saturday and he is a great leader. He has the ability to get people to like him. You know that he's like notorious for being friends all over, not only ESPN but his old his old locker room. Like I was looking at Instagram on on Sunday, Edran James. You know you wouldn't think Jeff Saturday and Edrin James would be boys outside of the locker room, right? But like Edrian James was there on the sideline to support him, and you know there is something to that. Maybe Jeff Saturday is just. It's, a magnetic person and he may have some sort of qualities and some sort of talents that the rest of us just don't know. And Jim Ursay is like, well, why not? And I kind of understand if you're going to do it, if you're going to make this kind of a move, this is the, oppor- this is the position in which you do it, right? Like you do it for interim position with a team that we thought at least, at least I thought prior to this weekend was trying to tank. Like I thought they were trying to lose the rest of their games to get a good draft position. Um, So yeah, man, I don't, I guess I'm still sort of torn. Like I, like with anything, we have to sit and wait it out. But you know, Jim Ursay, I mean, this is not right. If you're, if you're a fan of the Rooney rule and I am, and I think it's important, but I'm also like, you know what? I mean, I kind of want to see how this is going to turn out. And Jeff Saturday seems to be a guy that has a lot of support and his, done a lot to, you know, um, make connections with people and make them feel good about themselves. And obviously he was a great football player, so why not? You know, let's see if it works out.
2: Yeah, and and as you noted, Joel, like Jeff Saturday was well-liked. Well, offensive linemen have a reputation in locker rooms as being smart because they have to Mm -hmm. know everything that's going on, they understand the game, and they generally are well-liked. It doesn't surprise me that his former teammates – and current players who were quoted over the weekend said they really like Saturday. They like having him around. And that does go a long way because is there anything more toxic than an asshole head coach, than the bully head coach, than the know-it-all head coach, the man genies, And, you know, and Josh McDaniels fell into that category when he was hired as a young genius by the Broncos to replace Mike Shanahan um, 15 years ago. Um so the issue, again, goes back to, as you were pointing out, Josh, this thing about appearances. Like the Rooney rule, we should point out, doesn't apply to interim head coaching appointments. But it's still going to piss off people. Um, Yahoo Sports talked to a bunch of current and former black coaches and executives for a story. One of them was quoted saying, "Urse just said in front of the whole nation he got Saturday because he doesn't have experience. These people have us chasing our tails for what they're looking for. With those programs, I'm done with all that shit. Pick somebody else. Another executive said, if I do go and if they ask me to participate, they're not going to like what I say. Um, So, and the irony of all this too is that typically NFL teams have used interim positions as a place to give black coaches phony opportunities, to put them in a position to fail. The Washington Post just did this, is doing a series about black coaches. And that was one of the recent stories about how these are bullshit opportunities um, that give teams the chance to say, well, look, he lost. We need to move on and hire a white coach.
0: Yeah. I mean, I always, I I joked about this uh, uh, last week. I was like, this This was a job for Terry Robisky or Romeo Cornell if they were still in the NFL. This is typically, you know, the quarterback is hurt, running back is hurt, best defensive player is hurt. Uh, and not much to play for. All right. Well, let's bring in Raheem Morris. You know, <laughs> that's, that's, ty- that's typically how this sort of thing goes. So I'm actually sort of excited to see a white man get this opportunity and see <laughs> <laughs> what he does with it. Um, we don't have to, we don't have to give these jobs to black men all the time is, and again, like, I'm all for the Rooney rule. The NFL has a lot of amends to make in terms of its black uh, coaching record there, but, I can't get that worked up about this position because it's black, black coaches always get interim jobs or, or, or regularly get them. I shouldn't say always. They regularly get in these positions and they're usually bullshit. The only thing, the only thing that sort of makes me, again, sort of second guess this and you all can sort of hear my ambivalence here is that Ursay says openly, I hope this works out. I'd love to have an excuse to hire Jeff Saturday. And I don't know if that's just because this is his boy, they're friends, he wants to see it work out, and that's the thing you're supposed to say? Or does he earnestly believe that? In which case, this is not a typical interim opportunity because that's not usually the agreement most guys enter in in this position.
1: So Steve Wilkes, who's currently the Panthers interim coach, was um, part of the Brian Flores lawsuit, um, and his claim there as part of that class action was that when he was the non-interim, the full-time coach of the Arizona Cardinals, Wilkes was in 2018. He was fired after one season. He had a 3-13 record, and he alleges in the lawsuit that he was a bridge coach who was not given any meaningful chance to succeed. Um, and so the interim thing is really fascinating, and I was watching the end of the Auburn-Texas A&M game on Saturday um, where Auburn fired Brian Harson, who... Was brought in as a guy who, in a kind of classic, hard-ass coach, I'm going to like straighten everything out in this program and we're going to run the ball. And everybody ended up hating him and he was not successful and he got run out after a very short period of time. And Cadillac Williams, Auburn legend, part of the um, undefeated team in the early 2000s, I believe. And um, was a running backs coach, kind of classic position for a former player, black coach um, gets elevated to be the interim and the way in which the school has rallied around him, the fans have rallied around him, the way in which the players, his former teammates um, and the current players have rallied around him, the way that he's been vulnerable about it and talked about how he was scared um, to take on this role and the way that the current players and the staff have kind of lifted him up and told him that he can do it, and now he seems to believe that he can do it, um, and he's going to be coaching against Nick Saban in the Iron Bowl in a couple weeks, and I will be rooting incredibly hard for Auburn in that game. Um, And that kind of shows you, I guess there's maybe an opportunity cost here for, like, who's the Cadillac Williams of the NFL that could have gotten this role if Jeff Saturday didn't? Get it. And I think Jeff Saturday, and I believe what Dominique said and what other people have said that he's a great guy and a a good person and a good leader. He now has a responsibility to like lift up, you know, black assistants to, you know, maybe coach up or train up black players on the team to, you know, help them get these roles. And so that'll be a test too of whether this Hire was a, a success. And I do think that, you know, there is a risk of making a, an error here and saying that Saturday is an example of everything that's wrong in the NFL because he didn't have head coaching experience. Ursay is the problem here, and maybe Saturday can be part of the solution here as well. Yeah,
2: I mean, and Ursay to double down on his problem, and again, maybe it's not a problem in the short term, but... He also promoted to offensive coordinator a 30-year-old white dude who had never before called an NFL play. He wasn't the quarterback's coach of the Colts. He was the assistant quarterback's coach of the Colts. So is that someone that deserves an OC opportunity, which are the jobs that typically lead to head coaching jobs? Again, that falls on Ursay, who in two weeks has gone from hero for saying that Dan Snyder should be removed as the owner of the Washington team to another arrogant and tone-deaf doofus NFL owner. And, you know, so if Jeff Saturday can recognize some of that, if he's hired, um, and do his part to change it, you're right, Josh, that would be a meaningful change in the NFL.
0: Yeah, and so Ursay, we we acknowledge, is for better or worse, he's where we should be focusing most of our um, scrutiny at, right? And I think actually that Jeff Saturday's not to blame here you know, the Rooney rule blah blah blah. It's look man, they have a GM Chris Ballard who has not done a great job. Like this team if for, since Andrew Luck walked out of that locker room several years ago, they've been flailing at quarterback. And their they're playing Uh, for the rest of the year up until last week and a good move by Jeff Saturday was to go with a second year quarterback named Sam Ellinger, who I saw play a lot of college football at Texas. And let me tell you, like, (laughs) when he got to play against TCU, I was never afraid of Sam Ellinger. And to think that that guy was going to be a starting NFL quarterback for half of a season is absurd. And so, like, Ballard, bears the responsibility for those sort of decisions. And Jim Ursay is not prepared to firm. He said, look, I'm, I'm holding on to that guy. Well, I'm thinking about, well, that's also the sort of position. Like we, we focus so much on the coaches and assistant, co- offensive coordinator, whatever. But think about the black people that never get an opportunity to be Chris Ballard, to be in that position and fail. And then they get to hire them. Then they get to be there for the next coaching hire, right? So that's another piece of it too. It's just like, well, you know, Jim Ursay is sort of, uh, (laughs) running, running a franchise right now where there's a lot of holes in the ship and he's just plugging them in, but he refuses to do anything about this Chris Ballard guy. So you look, I mean, we don't, we don't know what Jeff Saturday is going to do. Obviously the Raiders are bad. You don't want to read too much into one game, but like, I mean, the problems with this franchise are going to endure after this. And I, I don't, I you know, it, it's nice. It's a great story for Jeff Saturday to do the post-games victory speech and all that other sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, that that roster isn't very good. They underperformed, and they're going to have to fix it. And the issue is, do you believe... Jim Irsay is the guy that is going to do right by the Rooney Rule and everybody else, all the other coaching candidates in this league and the GM candidates in this league and do the right thing and try to win in a way that is also fair and equitable for everybody else. And the next segment, the upside and the downside of the new NIL era.
1: Last week, Kurt Streeter of The New York Times wrote about one of the big success stories of the new NIL era in college sports. LSU gymnast Livy Dunn, who is an All-American as a freshman, is making an estimated $2 million plus annually in endorsement money by posting ads for jeans and activewear to her 8 million plus followers on Instagram and TikTok. Dunn is blonde and petite, and in those social media posts, she's almost always showing off her body. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Except, as Streeter notes, there are those who believe that the part of the NIL revolution that focuses on beauty is regressive for female athletes. Streeter then quotes Stanford women's basketball coach Tara Vanderveer, who says, I guess sometimes we have the swinging pendulum where we maybe take two steps forward and then we take a step back. We're fighting for all the opportunities to compete, to play, to have resources, to have facilities, to have coaches, and all the things that go with Olympic caliber athletics. This is a step back. What do you think, Joel? Joel?
0: Well, I'm reminded that, uh, Tara Vanderveer, when we w- watched the, uh, women's dream team documentary, uh, for the, about the, the 96 U.S. women's, uh, basketball team and how she was sort of an asshole there and <laughs> still seemed didn't seem to have a great relationship with her players. So that was one of the first things, uh, that came to mind when I read that story. But more broadly, I keep thinking, what took us so long? Like, you just think about, like, I know that there are concerns, about, you know, players leaning on sexuality or possibly getting into business with, you know, companies that aren't necessarily reputable or whatever. But on the whole, overall, what has been the holdup here? They're, They're making millionaires out of women's college basketball players money that they won't even be able to make in the WNBA. Just imagine... A female gymnast being able to tap into this sort of, uh, this sort of revenue. So it's just, I can't believe that we were, that people were against this for so long. Um. And now we, and now that we're here, I mean, people are going to come up with all sorts of reasons for why it shouldn't work or whatever. But like, I don't take very seriously the complaints of people that were there previous generations and didn't work to empower or enrich their athletes. And so that's sort of the basic of it. Now, the the, the last piece of this before I hand it over to Stefan is that NIL can never correct the injustice that is at the athletes in the revenue producing sports not getting salaries and not getting paid not getting not being treated as if they're employees like that is still a major issue um these college athletic departments should have to share their revenue with the people that generate it but in lieu of that like i'm glad that there's opportunities for uh the lsu gymnast or whatever like i don't like i don't i don't really have a problem with that in as much as i don't have a problem with instagram on the whole anyway like if a 21-year-old woman is on Instagram. You may see, you know, them having fun and showing off their petite bodies or whatever. But, like, that's that's just going to be a thing that happens regardless. I don't think NIL has anything to do with that.
2: And who cares? I mean, I think the, the larger question that Laura Wagner makes in a piece in Defector is that Why does this matter? Why is the New York Times devoting this space to a story that basically hangs this criticism on a 69-year-old women's basketball coach? Why is this LSU gymnast somehow bad for sports and for women's sports? She's not. She's making money. She's using her celebrity and her talent as an athlete to do what all athletes in college now have the opportunity to finally do, as you point out, Joel, which is to make some money off of their talents and off of their marketing skills, which um, has been the boon, especially for women athletes. The numbers on NIL overall, Josh, still overwhelmingly favor men and particularly male football players. um, But they have given the great, created the greatest equity and opportunity for women athletes. And that's a great thing.
1: She's making the money based on her looks, I think, more than her athletic ability. But A, there's not an issue with it. And B, um, as I think Laura uh, pointed out, what NIL rules do is it allows these athletes to participate in capitalism, and it's not going to correct <laughs> the kind of inequities of capitalism or right. what the market dictates who should get money. I mean, this, you know, Livy Dunn, is a extremely prominent and successful influencer on social media. She's a model, basically. Right. And models get paid because people like the way that models look. And the fact that you're a college gymnast shouldn't mean that you can't be paid to be a model. I mean, that's ridiculous. Um, And there was a really interesting story in the Washington Post by Kareem Copeland about um, Don Staley, the South Carolina coach, who was very um, kind of prominent and outspoken about her quest to be the highest paid coach at South Carolina, right? That she's the most successful coach. She's led the team to national championships um, and that she felt and she's correct and thinking that she deserved to um, get a, one of these huge college coaching contracts and how she is now trying to not only be number one in the rankings, which South Carolina is, but be number one in NIL and not be scared of it, not run from it, but actually try to use her fame and popularity to get NIL deals that are um, beneficial to her players, getting them equity in a, in a startup, not just getting them like money to, you know, endorse a car dealership or, or something like that. And so, you know, whether it's a good thing to get Players thinking as like venture capitalists or something like that, and like maybe getting stock that'll be worthless. I don't know if I don't know if it'll end up working out for the South Carolina women's basketball players, Joel. But that was refreshing to me mm-hmm. to see a coach not only be like, This is the world we're living in. I guess we're gonna have to deal with it, but like actively and aggressively trying to make her players money is pretty cool.
0: Yeah. It's refreshing and it's smart. And I mean, I think you you're gonna see either maybe the next generation of coaches or just the best coaches figure out that I, like, even if I have, um, an ethical concern about this, that I've got to engage in this, and actually I would you know even rebutting my own argument here, if I were a head coach and I had a problem with this, I'd be, well, why don't I have a problem with a such sit- a system in which my players can't get paid for the work that they do um so you know they need to balance that out, but yeah, like I think that Don Staley is smart to do this, and like well, I mean <laughs> it ain't i mean no offense to Columbia, South Carolina, but like you gotta you gotta try to get people there. The best way you can. And, you know, this is just one way to, to, to sort of grease the skids there. I think one thing though is that, like, okay, we know that these athletes are able to avail themselves of this money right now, and all this money is sort of coming in. But like, do you think that this is actually sustainable? Like, I actually like the thing that I'm, that I'm most interested in is like, okay, a lot of these companies are rushing in, flooding the market with money, making these deals with all of these athletes, just kind of spitting it around. But like, it just doesn't feel like this is going to ultimately look like this five or 10 years from now, right? Buying whole football teams, and hoping that, you know, one of them pops or something like that. A lot of it right now just seems like a huge waste of money. And it would, like with Olivia, you can understand the Livy Dunn thing. You can understand why people are giving her money. The same reasons that the New York Times featured her are the same reasons that NIO companies are, are giving her money. But like for everybody
2: else, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, right? I don't know, it makes sense. If a company decides it makes sense, whether it's sustainable or not is for the marketplace to decide. Um, and if you're in in terms of how you approach it as a university and as a coach, um, I think you have options, right? And I think that's what schools are trying to figure out right now. You can be sort of take the booster approach where you create these NIL collectives that are basically giving players salaries without calling them salaries, or you can do what Don Staley seems to be trying to do, which is getting athletes to come play for her because she's a great coach and it's a winning program, but also we're going to do right by you in a way that educates you about business and life and, oh, by the way, makes you money at the same time. Um, So there are going to be varied approaches until – and there's going to be some sort of regulation ultimately about how this works. And right now we're in the sort of Wild West period trying to – see which approaches work the best.
1: The thing that will persist is like these NIL collectives that are essentially fronts for boosters just to give athletes money and not expecting in return except the athlete playing for the school. Like the reason that will persist is because it's already existed for decades just under under the table. And so um, I, I think as long as there's not any expectation around, you know, signing up this athlete will like help me sell... X amount of product, then I think that category of, of deal where it's just like the the reward or the payoff is getting whoever to play for whatever school like that that'll work. But also just like it'll work, LSU, Josh.
2: But isn't isn't that what's likely to be the the first thing that 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 the NCAA and Congress try to regulate?
1: Well, good luck. I mean, we'll we'll see. I mean, but there is just like. The category of, you know, at LSU, there's a personal injury lawyer named Gordon McKernan who just like sponsors all of the good players. And I like know that guy's name now um, because of that. I didn't know that, uh, you know, that this personal injury lawyer in Baton Rouge existed. So that's been good for his name recognition, uh, I'm sure. Um, but I guess the last thing I would say is I think it's easy for us to talk about um you know, I, I think there were problems with the Kurt Streeter column. I agree with Laura Wagner's cr- critique of it, but I, I think a way to maybe have strengthened his argument that I that I didn't see in it, but I think is legitimate, is that a lot of for women athletes in particular, the way that they make money through NIL is through social media posts, and it requires you to give of yourself in this way, where you need to be available for for fans and people and they you have to read through all these like horrible comments that people make about you constantly and like you have to just allow people into your life in such a way that's like not typical for an endorsement it's like not like you're just making a Gatorade ad you have to like post about like i use so this product in my life and also it's next to this video of me lip syncing and like please comment and tell me what you think and it's like very invasive and ha- can have a profound impact on your self image. I mean S- Sedona Prince who got famous for posting this TikTok video showing the the weight room disparity at March Madness. That's kind of a success story. I mean she's a 6 foot 7 like basketball player, like not sort of the traditional person that you would see in a commercial, but she has said that she like makes more than $500,000 now. But I also saw a social media post that she made that where she was like crying and talking about how social media is like a great thing, right. but also it's kind of wrecked her life.
0: And also, I mean, the other thing about social media and NIL deals is that all it does is reify existing inequalities in capitalism. So like, I, I'm glad to hear that Sedona Prince. Like you said, she's six foot seven. That's not typically the person that gets to be up front.
1: But she's also gay. And like, because a lot of her, you know, she's been prominent for being like an out woman athlete in, in sports. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and like, that's, tip, those aren't typically the people that are going, that have made money through NIL, and or, or that are going to make money uh through advertising industry. So that's sort of the thing, I guess, I just, I hate the idea that the advertising industry always gets to run everything, like that we, you know, like from media, to sports, to whatever, that they ultimately get to decide what the market is. And we just sort of have to deal around that, you know, and the incursion of that into college sports is fine if, if the only concern is about whether or not they get money. But my, my thing is, is that if you're hoping that NIL is the solution to the broader problem of athletes not getting in a cut of these massive TV deals that athletic departments are cutting, I'm sorry. That's just not going to cut it. We won't even have to have these co- – like, it, it should be obvious that athletes should be able to endorse themselves and put themselves out on social media for whatever. Like, I mean, they are adults and they they can be treated as such. But my, my, my big thing here, as always, is that these colleges and these conferences are getting off the hook because they don't have to, pl- to pay the athletes. And this is just not a sufficient um, alternative. And if you want these advertising companies and the advertising industry and social media companies to be the people that, the the intermediaries here, I just don't think that we're ultimately gonna be happy with the the end result.
2: Well, they're off the hook for now, Joel. And I think that's the conversation for the next 10 years. Will there be an equitable distribution of the revenue in college sports for the athlete workers?
1: Now it is time for After Balls, sponsored by Bennett's Prune Juice, endorsed by Kenny Sailors, who says it was okay. Mentioned uh, interim coach Cadillac Williams earlier, part of the 2004 undefeated Auburn Tigers football team, went 13-0. Um, four first-round draft picks on that team, Joel. You know who they were?
0: Ronnie Brown, who was the other running back who was actually drafted ahead of him. Jason Campbell and it was a cornerback. I cannot remember his name.
1: Carlos um, Rogers. Carlos Rogers. That's it. Yep. Good, uh, good memory. Um, but as you mentioned, Ronnie Brown was the higher drafted running back on that team. And he also had one of the greatest individual games ever, the famous Miami Dolphins Wildcat game, where they just completely ripped the Patriots to shred with Ronnie Brown. Um running and throwing from the wildcat. So I think this is a good moment. We want to celebrate Carnell Cadillac Williams, but we also want to remember his backfield teammate, the great Ronnie Brown. Um, Stefan, what is your Ronnie Brown?
2: I was at Indiana University last week doing some reporting. The university recently acquired an enormous collection of dictionaries and other word-related material. And as I was scanning some shelves, I noticed a title that seemed out of place. A Wife's Guide to Baseball by Charlene Gibson and Michael Rich. Charlene Gibson was Bob Gibson's wife. Michael Rich was a PR guy at Newsweek. Published in 1970, A Wife's Guide to Baseball was part of a series. Rich also co-wrote A Wife's Guide to Pro Basketball with Jane West, Jerry's wife, and A Wife's Guide to Pro Football with Elaine Tarkenton, Fran's wife. The cover of Gibson's book, showed a woman's hands, rings on multiple fingers, a bracelet on a wrist, holding a baseball bat. The premise was about as sexist as you'd imagine. Women can't handle the complexities of sports, so here's the wife of an actual athlete to explain the basics. And so was the public response. Sports Illustrated wrote that a man who takes his wife to a game might find her while all hell is breaking loose a field, Ten seats over, asking a perfect stranger where she purchased those adorable maxi pants. Columnist Dick Young of the New York Daily News wrote, Get this book for your little lady, and maybe she will look at you with less suspicion when you talk in your sleep about a bang-bang play. One more, Rex Lardner reviewing the book favorably in the New York Times. Can these ladies ever catch up? They play baseball kind of funny, if at all, and because of glands, etc., are more likely to be enchanted by the colors of the visiting team's uniforms than by the spearing of a liner. Oh my God, these men, and well, men, just the worst. A Wife's Guide to Baseball itself wasn't written in a condescending style. The 178-page book is a position-by-position and rule-by-rule account of the game. Bob Gibson added footnotes and comments about pitching. In a foreword, Commissioner Bowie Kuhn's wife, Louisa, said that society was changing and women, once discouraged by a hostile male attitude from following baseball, were more welcome now. On the other hand, the byline on her words was Mrs. Bowie Kuhn. In a year when Mr. Bowie Kuhn tried to ban pitcher Jim Bowden's raucous tell-all Ball 4, A Wife's Guide to Baseball was MLB-sanctioned marketing. But Charlene Gibson wanted to discomfort readers at least a little on the subject of race. She was no civil rights radical. One interviewer described her as a just-out-of-the-lamp genie, who in a fluid burnt orange jumpsuit and gold necklaces cast a spell. And she doesn't describe in the book her own history growing up in a poor neighborhood in Omaha or how Bob Gibson suffered racial abuse in the minors in the Jim Crow South and early in his major league career, where his first manager with the Cardinals, Sally Hemis, freely hurled racial epithets at black players, to motivate them, as recounted in a 2018 story in The Undefeated, and demeaned Gibson's intellect by telling his pitcher not to bother attending pregame strategy meetings. That piece also noted that in 1968, when he won 22 games, posted a 1.12 ERA, and struck out 268 batters, plus 17 more in Game 1 of the World Series, Gibson pitched through anger over the assassination of Martin Luther King, anger that he shared with other black players on the team, including Lou Brock and Kurt Flood, and white players like Tim McCarver, who said later that Gibson schooled him about racism throughout that season. It's in that personal context, and the broader social one, too, that Charlene Gibson tiptoed in a book marketed at white women into telling a few truths about race and sports. Sure, baseball has made progress since Jackie Robinson broke the color line 23 years ago, she wrote, but it didn't really amount to much. For instance, why did newspapers feel the need to constantly write about black and white players rooming together on the road? So what, she said. Baseball is highly contradictory, Charlene Gibson wrote. Race was only an issue, she pointed out, when the uniforms came off. Partly, she said, it is an issue because black ball players love the game every bit as much as white ball players do, but unlike whites, have no opportunity to manage in the major leagues or to have a significant front office job or something similar. Take that, Mister and Mrs. Bowie Kuhn. Baseball has been good to the Gibsons, Charlene Gibson concluded, and we love the game, not for what it has done for us, but for what it is. Anyway, it would be five years before Frank Robinson managed the team in Cleveland, and 52 years later, we're still talking about the paucity of black American players, managers, and executives in Major League Baseball.
1: That's great, Stefan. What a uh, find. You hadn't heard of this before uh, you encountered it, I presume?
2: I had not. No, the collection did not include the uh, Mrs. West and Mrs. Tarkenton's books, alas.
1: So, Stefan, it sounds like this ruined your di- dictionary research. You got obsessed with this really fascinating book about baseball.
2: <laughs> there were like 865 boxes of books in this room. So this was a, a brief diversion from poking through uh, the, this collection.
0: Has, has Charlene Gibson written any other books since then? Because it sounds like she's got some good to great stories, possibly that uh, might be worth hearing in full.
2: Well, I, my takeaway was mostly, Joel, that I really wish I could have heard Charlene Gibson talk unvarnished about being the wife of a hugely successful black player um, and a woman who was sort of featured on like women's pages and society pages as a sort of pillar of the community and a woman of means. Um, but what she really thought about baseball and how the sport treated black players um, sort of hints through in the, the the four pages that she spent talking about race in this book.
0: Yeah, I mean, one thing about it, man, is that uh, wives uh, have as good or better, uh, or partners uh, are good about like what that environment is like for them. And they have the ability to talk with a little bit more freedom than even the players do, right? So and I guess it's uh, probably too late. I assume she is uh, not, no longer with She's us. She's no longer but, with uh, us, yeah. Oh, well, too bad about that.
1: That is our show for today. Our producer is Kevin Bendis. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com hangup, and you can email us at slate.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Now it is time for our bonus segment for Slate Plus members. And for the TCU football team this past week, a win on the road against a mediocre Big 12 opponent. Um, Mm. You know, obviously nothing to get too excited about against now a four-loss Texas team. Um, You know, the competition will get a little bit stiffer down the road. I guess, you know, Joel, it's Hmm. a little bit of a rivalry game. Although, you know... Given the lack of success of Texas, kind of post integration, like what are is it even really a rivalry anymore? But well, I'm I just say, curious for your views on.
0: I mean, I mean, what is a rivalry? I mean, since uh, TCU joined the Big Twelve, uh, they're eight and three against Texas. So a rivalry is when the other team wins occasionally, right? Um, that is, that's not what Texas is doing against TCU. I would, you 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 might be better off saying Kansas State is more of a rival, maybe Baylor, something like that. But not not Texas. Uh, but, uh, you know, I don't I don't want you. I mean, I know the, what you're doing here and I appreciate it. Um, you're indulging. <laughs> what am I doing? You're indulging my distaste of the University of Texas and its athletics program. But I don't want to let's, let's not diminish that victory this weekend. I mean, Texas was the favorite. <laughs> they were a touchdown favorite against the fourth ranked team in the country. Um, they were ranked until TCU won and knocked them out of the top 25. They have the literally—I'm not making this up—the highest-rated high school quarterback recruit in the history of recruiting rankings. Starting for them right now, they have a running back with a Lamborghini endorsement. Okay, uh, they have a, NIL, one of the ba- baby. Yeah, one of the best wide receivers. So, like, let's not let's not talk about them like this was Navy, you know? TCU beat (laughs) TCU beat a machine, uh, and they were favorite to
1: lose.
0: Right? Yeah. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So, uh, let's not downplay my frogs. This was a major victory, and you know, hopefully, you know, three more wins for the rest of their life, man. Let's 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 get it.
2: All right. What are the next three? Joel, bring us up to speed on the schedule and the chances. Right.
0: So right now. TCU's number 4 in the college uh, football playoff rankings um if they hold so they've got to win three more games next week against Baylor our primary rival let's I'm not even I'm not even bullshitting you guys like Baylor is TCU's uh, biggest rival at this point Iowa State which is having a down year but it's still you know feisty they can be frisky they can- yeah, they can be, fr- they could be frisky. I'm I, it's not, and then you, then you have the Big 12 championship game, which at this point would be a rematch against Kansas State. And Kansas State's played pretty well. And I mean, I thought they outplayed TCU in that first game earlier. They, they just, their <clears> quarterbacks <throat> got hurt. They, they lost two quarterbacks in that game. So, um, it's not going to be easy, but, um, you know, TCU, you know, they're in a pretty good position right now. Uh, and, and certainly not a position that I would have ever envisioned they would have been in at the start of the season, or should even like three weeks ago.
1: It's just great to hear you, um, even if cajoled into it by uh, by me, just to uh, <laughs> take a little pride in your uh, university and not just be downplaying their uh, accomplishments for your own emotional management
2: the ninth win Joel feels like it's given you a, a little uh, a little adrenaline boost here you seem a little well, happier about the uh, the prospects
0: well I mean you know beating Texas in the, in that way first of all embarrassing them at their game day party I mean they did fucking score. They didn't for, uh, score offensive touchdown in their own. And I'm sorry, I have to slow down because I get really excited when I talk about how bad Texas is. But I mean, <laughs> I mean we pun- we punished their sorry asses on their home field. They didn't get to see their offense score touchdown. Their Heisman Trophy candidate running back again, who has the Lamborghini endorsement, didn't even crack 30 yards. So that was really thrilling. And it showed me that Sonny Dykes' team can win in another way. And yeah, I, you know what? I think I am prepared to give me a culpa because TCU lose the next two games, and it still would be a successful season. Um, I'm not judging it on whether or not we make it to the playoffs. I'm judging it on the fact that TCU, for the last four to five years, had committed some of the stupidest penalties. They were just one of the dumbest teams I saw play all year. Max Dugan, the quarterback, was wildly ineffective, and I had hoped he went away. I was hoping he would leave through the t- the transfer portal. Um, we lost you know, Zach Evans, who's now at Ole Miss and was thought to be one of the top running backs in the country. And in spite of all that, Sonny Dykes has coached these boys up really good. And he seems to be a nice guy. Everybody I've ever no. heard talk to him, no? <laughs> he seems to be a nice guy. You know, look, I didn't want – I I thought it was time for Coach Patterson to go. I Obviously. Like I just thought the program had gone stale or whatever. I was not excited about Sonny Dykes. I thought that we should get Dion, but I have to admit – so far, it seems to be
1: wrong. Hopefully, The train he can sustain has left it, the but...
2: station, Josh, and Joel is in the conductor's yeah. booth.
1: This, this season, is great. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm loving this. You didn't mention, Joel, that Gary Patterson is now where? Where is Gary Patterson these days? Uh,
0: yeah. Well, you know, see, I thought Gary Patterson had a good night. I mean, t- TCU's offense looked terrible, but yes, Gary Patterson is a a, a, a consultant at the University of Texas, a school he hated the most when he was at TCU, and he's joined the dark side, and he got to watch us uh, kick their ass on their home field. But, um, yeah, man, he's over there, but I thought Garrett Patterson actually had a pretty good night. I mean, I, I assume that he's the one that was cord, you know, put together the defense that basically shut down TCU's offense on Saturday night. But yeah, man, he's over there. And now he had to see, he had to deal with what we do to Texas all the damn time. You know what I mean? <laughs> we treat, we treat, we treat Texas like, OU used to treat, like, Oklahoma State, uh, like Kansas. You know what I mean? Like, I, f- I wanna say Kansas has, has two wins over TCU since they joined the <laughs> Big 12. So, like, I mean, it's not, I mean, we basically treat Texas like Kansas.
1: Somebody, a dedicated listener, should do a linguistic analysis of Joel during our TCU segments because I feel like the we quotient has gone up mm-hmm. a uh, huge amount this week. I was trying, I
0: was trying not to. I was trying, not to. I, was, I was trying. <laughs> when you get to.
1: excited, you just go with the we. So, Stefan, the national media is now trying to pit LSU and TCU against each other because, oh, because if of you LSU, guys? because of us, but also because if LSU wins out, which is unlikely maybe similarly unlikely to TCU winning out um, mm. yeah. then to make the playoff, then LSU, um, yeah. you know, maybe it would be helpful to them if, T- if TCU dropped one in the next, uh, next three. So you're
2: saying you're rooting against Joel?
1: No. I'm saying the national media is being com- reckless and irresponsible and trying to, you know, pit the fans of these, these two extremely storied universities against each other.
0: What I would say is that if LSU beats Georgia, I don't have a problem with them making the playoffs. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if they beat Georgia, then you—I have it on record—I don't have a problem with them making the playoffs. If they beat Georgia, maybe Georgia else.
2: shouldn't be in the playoffs. Joel and TCU, undefeated TCU, should. Well, that, look, that's what—that's exactly what I'm saying.
0: Um So you would have the SEC champion versus a team that didn't win their their league, and I don't, you know, I. I'd have to go back and look at George's schedule, but I'm not that impressed with it. So
1: yeah, man, we they don't just have to beat the to absolute ever loving crap out of Oregon, um, which was impressive. Um but uh and they beat Tennessee. So so George's got some some things going for him. I would say that TCU is definitely safe if they go undefeated. The issue is if hypothetically they lost to Baylor but then won the Big Twelve championship game, there's gonna be a whole mess of um, of teams that'll be in contention for some of those final CFP spots, and then also you know you'll have one loss Tennessee that didn't make the conference mm. championship and a game, a one like, loss
2: Michigan or Ohio State,
1: exactly. Oh, yeah. Or That's right. you know the Pac twelve will probably be out of it at this point if USC doesn't um, go undefeated the rest of the way. But you know and likely won't. You know that that a, a one loss USC would make it as like a kind of showcase. Uh, team. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this stuff uh plays out. Go Tigers.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well so you kinda are rooting against the Frogs if you, when you say that right there. But I'm just oh, joking. no, no. no. Uh,
1: of course not. I mean if Dave Aranda, the former LSU defensive coordinator, who's now the head coach of Baylor, if he were to put together a good game plan against the frogs you know i would be happy for him for sure just you know because Mm. of all the Mm. service he put towards you know the 2019 national championship game but it doesn't go any further than that nope
0: no, nobody with a moral compass should be uh, happy with baylor doing good at anything at any time
1: ever all right you've shamed me i'm really sorry (laughs) thank you a possibility
2: (laughs) of a possibility of a four-way tie in the ivy league this weekend for the championship. Oh, is, so is
0: Brown involved in any of that? Brown or is no? not
2: involved in any of that. Oh. No. no. What about Penn? Penn is involved. If Penn beats Princeton and Harvard beats Yale, four-way tie for the title. Half the league oh. gets to share the title.
1: Really? Well, we'll all be looking forward to that, I guess. Um, and we'll be uh, following the uh, TCU football team as events warrant. Good luck, Joel.
0: Yeah, thanks. Thanks. We're, we'll, uh, we're, we're looking forward to next week.
1: All right. And we will be back... Next week for the Slate Plus uh, segment. Thank you, Slate Plus members. Later.